story is told about a senior citizen who received an unexpected uh, telegram when the deliverer told her that he had a telegram for her she said oh is it a singing telegram and he said no just a telegram he, she said I've always wanted to have a singing telegram could you sing this telegram for me he said well this is not our regular custom but if you insist I'll be glad to she said please do it means so much to me and the deliverer said da 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 your sister Rose is dead <laughs> kind of cruel isn't it (laughs) but actually there's a purpose I wanted to use that because sometimes what we see as bad our God has the capacity of making it good making it meaningful making it a lesson in life as we read about the uh, leper in today's gospel, can't help but think back over Jesus' words when his apostles asked him about a man who was born blind that Jesus had restored to sight. And they said, was this man blind because of his own sins or the sins of his parents? And Jesus said, no, for neither of them. He was born blind so that he might glorify God. That blindness, there were many people that have been blind uh, in the world that none of us know. But there's one man who was born blind by the name of Bartimaeus that every Christian knows. Because there was a lesson in his life and the restoration of his sight gave glory to God and gave strength and encouragement to us. And so it is with all of the encounters that Jesus had. Not only the historical encounters that are recorded in Scripture, but the encounters that he continues to have in the life of each of us, of those of you seated here in this building this morning. God's interaction with you through his Son, Jesus Christ brings glory to the God whom we all serve. And if we will cooperate with him, it brings blessings to us. So I want you to consider a few things with me this morning. Isn't it dreadful to be sick? Even simple sicknesses such as runny noses or upset stomachs or even something more serious like life-threatening illnesses. How terrible it is to be sick. Isn't it dreadful to be shunned from society to be cut away from the people whom we love and whom we long to be with 
and to be marginalized for some reason, pushed out of their lives. Even when it happens in some major thing like apartheid in South Africa or segregation in America or even a more narrow personal marginalization that happens with the young college sorority pledge who is turned down and cast away from that group whom she hoped to be a part of. Or even the ostracizing of the emotionally handicapped child in the playground. And so you read Mark's gospel and you quickly find out it's all about people discovering who Jesus is. Sight, this idea of Jesus opening eyes, that's a big theme of Mark's gospel. Who is Jesus? And so we have these disciples who are kind of beating around the bush and they kind of get it, but not exactly. And it comes to the point in chapter 8, Jesus is probably at the height of his earthly ministry. I mean, they love this guy. He's just fed 5,000 people. Everybody's talking about him. Everybody wants a piece of him. Everybody wants to know him and to touch him. And Jesus goes away with his disciples. He says, hey, who, who do the crowds think that I am? They love me. Who, who, who do they think that I am? Who are they comparing me to? And the disciples respond, well, some say Moses, some say Elijah, some say some of the other prophets. And Jesus looks at them and says, who do you, Peter, James, John, who do you say that I am? And in a stroke of brilliance, a moment of divine clarity, Peter says, you are the Christ. Matthew's gospel, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we think, wow, Peter maybe is going to get it. And so they confess Jesus, and immediately Jesus starts teaching about some pretty sorrowful things. And he says, okay, you got it. That's very good. Now, I want you to know this. I'm, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of some people who don't like me very much. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I will raise again. He tells them all this. Peter doesn't want to hear any of it, not even the raise again part. And so Peter, Peter calls him aside. Hey, Jesus, um, I know you're the Messiah, but you really shouldn't be saying such things. And Jesus' response, get behind me, Satan. And so Peter, um, well, he doesn't get it. And in light of, in light of all of that, Jesus turns to the other disciples and he says to them, you, you, you know, you think I'm the Messiah. You claim that I'm Messiah. You want to follow me and here's, here's what I say to you. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God and if you believe that, and you want to follow me, you're going to have to lay aside your life. So that's the context for our reading today. And so we get to the transfiguration. Um, and chapter 9, verse 2 says this, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain 
by themselves. So they leave. They go to pray again, and the disciples are probably thinking, what is going on? We thought we got this, but now we don't really know. And, and we're going up this mountain to pray, and there Jesus is transfigured. What does this mean? You might think transformed. His, his image was, became something totally new, something totally different. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Jesus was transfigured, transformed. What happens next? There appeared before him Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. So we have these great Old Testament figures. One is a prophet. One is Moses. He's also a prophet, but he's also, God gave him the law. He, he facilitated the covenant between Israel and God, and they're up there, and they're talking with Jesus. And the implication is that Jesus takes this, this law and prophets, these books of the Old Testament, and he fulfills them. He is the end. He's, he's what all of these things were pointing to, what Elijah was pointing to, what Moses was pointing to. And we see them here on this mountaintop. And the disciples see who Jesus really is. Again, this idea of their eyes are opened. And how do they respond? Well, Peter was absolutely terrified. Terrified to see Jesus like this. Now, why, why is that? You would think maybe he would be excited or happy. But if you think about Jesus, he's seen in his glory... The glory of God is something that was fearful, fearful. Throughout the Old Testament, people could not stand in the presence of God. Moses, at some point, in in an image very similar to this, he's up on the mountain, he's praying with God, he's talking with God, and and in chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses, Moses says this, he says, Lord, Please show me your glory. So Moses is up there. He's thinking, okay, God, we're on pretty good terms. Let me, let me see you. Let me see your face. And God says, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so Peter thinks he's going to die. Isaiah lifted up into a vision, and he beholds the glory of God, and he doesn't think, wow, this is cool. He thinks, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. And so Peter, and he thinks he's going to die, and so he just stammers out. He says, well, uh, let's make some booze. I mean, really, <laughs> I love Peter because I can so identify with that. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Let's just make a booth. Um, he, he's thinking, though, this isn't totally off the wall. This idea of a tent, making a tent for the three of these would reflect a Jewish tradition, the Feast of the Tabernacles, where they would remember their time in the wilderness, where they spent in tents, where the glory of God dwelt among them in the tabernacle, in a tent. And so maybe he sees the glory of God and he says, well, we need, we need a tabernacle. We need to, to put this glory somewhere where, where it's more, I don't know, more um, 
traditional, where we can access God in more traditional ways where we don't have to worry about dying um, because he's right here in front of us. And he wants to put God in a little box, in a little booth. And then it gets better because the, the, the cloud comes down. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him. If you've been reading Mark, you, if you're reading through, you would recognize that line from Jesus' baptism. He's baptized by John, and, and the clouds part, and, and God says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to Him, and then it's gone. Just like that. The voice is gone. The cloud is gone. Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus' radiance is gone. They head down the mountain to meet the others. They're instructed to tell no one and to go on with life as normal. Can you imagine? So what are we going to do with this? What, this is a great story, but what, are we gonna, what is it going to do for us? What does it mean? This is a glimpse of Jesus in His glory. This is a glimpse of Jesus. This is a potentiality. My, my, my daughter, the, the sorry Gamecocks football team, we get this glimpse of Jesus' glory. But then it's, then it's over. And the, really the problem with Peter's suggestion wasn't so much that it was um, ridiculous, although it seems to be so. It was more just it's the idea that we could take this glory of God and put it right here in a box, in a tent on the mountain. Because we can't do that. And especially not in the transfiguration. Because, as you can see, people still aren't getting it. People still aren't understanding who Jesus is. We see Him in His glory, transfigured on the mountain, but we don't get it. And here's why. Because we cannot understand Jesus. We cannot understand Him apart from the cross. The fact of the matter is, Jesus has just talked about His death. He comes down from the mountain. He talks about His death two more times in the next two chapters, not to mention however many times He talks about it when He reaches Jerusalem in chapter 11. We can't escape it. This vision of glory is surrounded by images of death. There's a picture, or this picture of the transfiguration. When, when you see it, you think about the resurrection, of course. You think about Jesus raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. But there's another way that Jesus is glorified. In John's gospel, just after Judas betrays Jesus, he's about to be delivered to the authorities who would, will kill him. Jesus prays this, Father, glorify your Son. Glorify your Son. And so the glory of the transfiguration is contrasted with the fullness of Jesus' glory on the cross. The next time Jesus will go up on the mountain will be Mount Golgotha. The next time He is surrounded on either side, it will not be Moses and Elijah, but it will be two thieves. And on that mountain, next to those two thieves, there will be no voice from God 
It will only be the voice of Jesus, his dying words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The glory, the transfiguration can only be seen through the glory of the cross. It's incomplete. It's just potential. Jesus comes down from the mountain and descends to the grave, and then His glory is realized as He's raised up from the dead to the right hand of God. So, what is... What does this mean for us as disciples? Well, when we see the transfiguration, um, one thing we have to realize is, is the transfiguration is about worship. We sang this, this earlier this morning, here in your presence. We're, we're in the presence of God. The three disciples, they went up, this idea of being lifted up into the presence of God on the mountain of the transfiguration We come here on Sunday mornings. We're lifted up into the presence of God. The traditional prayer book, before we begin as we begin communion, we say, "Lift up your hearts." God lifts us up into His presence. But the amazing thing is, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid like Peter. We can rejoice because when Jesus Christ. Realized the fullness of His glory on the cross and in His resurrection. He took our sins with Him. These things that keep us from the presence of God, He nailed them to the cross so that we could stand in the presence of God, that we wouldn't have to be afraid, that we could rejoice. And so it, it becomes about worship. We come, this is, this is, think of this as a transfiguration when we come and worship God. We're in the presence of His glory, but that's going to end. And we're going to leave, and we're going to pray a prayer something like this. After communion, grant us strength and courage to love and serve You. We come here, we experience the glory of God, and we leave so that we could walk the way of the cross so we could follow Jesus, so we could take up our own crosses into this world and proclaim the gospel. That's one thing we might bring home from the transfiguration. And and the second thing is this. We see who Jesus really is. And this is a problem for all of us. We really, we want to be like Peter and put him in this box. You know, we want the Jesus that blesses us and affirms us and, and, and who loves us unconditionally, and um, who says, if you do this, I'll, I'll do this for you, this sort of exchange. Okay, Jesus, I'm going um, to pay more money to the church, so now you really need to bless me. That's the Jesus we want. Um, but that's, that's not the real Jesus. We're, we're, we're trying to put Him in a box, trying to put Him on the mountain in His glory. But we don't want to hear this Jesus, the challenging Jesus, the one who says stuff like this, you know, just a few verses later. The disciples wanted to ask him who the greatest is, and he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That Jesus is hard to deal with. Or how about this one? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. 
Or how about this Jesus a couple of verses later? He has pity on the rich young ruler. How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's the Jesus we don't really, we want to keep that Jesus out of the box. And so when we come before him and we reflect on this transfiguration, we, we realize that, that this glory that we're seeing cannot be contained. It's going to challenge us. It's going to cause us to, to be uncomfortable, to, to walk the way of the cross, literally to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And so when you, when you think back on this passage, think about the, the potential that we're seeing. This idea of a reality that is not fully realized until we go through the valley of the shadow of death. And there we'll join Jesus, and He'll walk with us and hold our hands and bring us through it. But we walk with Him nonetheless through suffering and pain so that we can realize the full glory of the resurrection. So I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to... um, Use a prayer that's in our prayer book, this, this for this Sunday in particular. And if you all just pray with me, these are very powerful words. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding thy, by faith the light of his countenance, that by faith we behold his glory, When we behold His glory, may we be strengthened to bear our cross and to be changed into His likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please stand.